following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, uh, one Thanksgiving... Father had asked his four-year-old son, Evan, if he wanted to offer a prayer before the meal. And though Evan was reluctant, he agreed and he began to thank God. Um, he began to thank God for his mom and his dad, for his uh, aunt and uncle, for his grandma and grandpa, even for his sister as he was praying. And then he began to thank God for the food. And he was uh, praying, thanking the Lord for all that he had provided. And occasionally he'd be looking up during his prayer to make sure he didn't miss anything around the table. He thanked God for the turkey and for the stuffing, for the casserole, and for the cranberry sauce and the fruit salad, the pumpkin pie, the whipped cream, the napkins, the forks, the knives. He's just going around the table, everything. And then, and then Evan paused. And he stopped a moment, looked up again at the table, bowed his head and began to hesitantly pray. And thank you, thank you, he says, and then another pause. Then he tried to start again, and he said, thank you, Lord, for... And it's at that moment, Evan just blurted out, I just can't do it, I can't do it. And his dad was a little puzzled and said, son, what's, what's wrong? And he said, if I thank God for the broccoli, he's going to know I'm lying. <laughs> I kind of like broccoli, but... Yes, it's, you know, a few days from now, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving. And I know uh, many of us will be seated around the table with uh, friends and family and maybe describing things that we are thankful for. Our passage today in Amos is one where we will be reminded about something that God has given us, a precious gift for which we have received from Him and we should be grateful for. But sadly, it is a gift that will likely not be mentioned at most tables this year, this Thanksgiving on this Thursday. It's a gift even that the people of Israel showed no gratitude for, and in the end they rejected it in Amos's day as well. So I'd ask you to please turn with me to Amos 7, and we're going to find out just what that gift is and how we can be encouraged to better appreciate it in our own lives. Amos 7 is where we'll be. This is now begins the third section in the book of Amos. The first section was in chapters 1 and 2 where Amos had been giving the declarations of God's judgment upon the nations which were surrounding Israel and focused especially on Israel herself. And then in chapters 3 to 6 formed the second section of his book where we are given three oracles by Amos which describe further details of God's judgment and why he was bringing it and a call to the people to repent. And then here in chapter 7, verse 1, begins the third section, which is framed by five visions that Amos received from God. And this morning, we're going to look at four of those five visions in chapter 7 and 8. And our outline, for those of you taking notes this morning, will be the heart of the messenger in chapter 7, verses 1 to 9, and then the response to the message in 7, 10 through 17, and finally God's reaction to the response in chapter 8. Let's first look at the heart of the messenger in Amos 7, 1 through 9. And if, again, you can please stand in honor of God's word as I read the first nine verses of chapter 7. It is here that God says through Amos these words. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. It came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me. And behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with him by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How could Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Then he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I shall rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword." 
We'll stop there for a minute. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, here Amos gives us in these nine verses the first three visions that he saw that the Lord gave him. And notice they all have similar features in them. They all begin with the same phrase, thus the Lord showed me, followed by a picture of the vision of what Amos saw. In each vision, there is a dialogue between God and Amos. All of them center around the theme of God's judgment. And all of them end with God's decision as to whether or not he will bring that judgment. The first vision that we see here is an all too familiar one, a swarm of locusts, something that God had promised in Deuteronomy 28. If the people had forsaken their covenant with God here, we met these guys before. Remember, up close and personal, we went through the book of Joel in particular, where a a locust plague had hit Judah about 70 years prior to Amos's day. Back in Amos 4.9, Amos also referred to a plague of locusts that had hit Israel. And it could have been the same plague that had happened in Joel's day, but it was one that Israel had experienced also herself. And in Amos's first vision here, God was to bring locusts. And it's important here, notice Amos says twice, Behold, behold, because he wants to draw our attention to the timing as to when these locusts would come. Notice he says that they would come when the spring crop began to sprout, And it was after the king's reaping or the king's mowing. And what we learn here is that there are two uh, crops that were typically harvested by Israel. There was a first crop that was often a vegetable, sometimes grain, other things like that. And we see here that the king actually would take a part of that crop for the royal household, kind of like a tax. And then after that crop was harvested, there was another crop that would be growing about the same time. This was in the springtime. That crop was typically grain. And Amos mentions here that this locust swarm was going to come right after the king took his portion, before the people could harvest the rest of the crop. And that these locusts would come right at the time when the next crop was sprouting. And so they would essentially, in that, destroy both crops and completely destroy every food source that the people would have. And so here Amos mentions that this was going to come. And as he's watching this vision play out, and as he sees the locusts moving through the first crop and then beginning to attack the second, he cries out to God. He says, Master Yahweh, please forgive, pardon. How can Jacob stand? Or literally, who is Jacob that he can stand? Jacob, a reference to Israel. For he is small. The idea there is he's weak. Amos knew the people could not survive this ruin. And so he begged God for mercy on their behalf. And then verse 3 says that God heard his prayer and he responded by saying that he changed his mind. Now that doesn't mean that God realized he made a mistake or was going back on his word. We see this phrase often in the Old Testament. It's a common phrase to refer to God relenting from judgment, either in response to repentance or in response to prayer. And in this case, Amos's prayer Move God's heart not to bring this judgment. Then we see Amos' second vision in verses 4 through 6, where Amos sees a picture of God bringing fire down from heaven, consuming the land. He describes how it licks up the water sources in the land, the wells, the rivers, uh, even the deep lakes. And that is moving into the land, destroying vegetation. And again, as Amos sees this vision playing out, and as he sees the destruction by fire that is coming upon the land, he cries out again to God, saying, God, please, please stop, cease, don't do this. That is when also God chooses to relent. Verse 7, then we come to the third vision, the vision of the plumb line. And this vision, as we look at it, there are a few differences from the first two visions. It does begin the same way with the same introduction. Thus, the Lord showed me and then followed by the picture of what the vision was that he saw. But notice here that before Amos says anything, it is the Lord that speaks to Amos. Unlike the first two visions in this vision, God brings Amos with a question and he says, Amos, what do you see? Amos then tells him what he sees. And here in this case, that have to ask the question, well, why, why does God do this? Well, I think in the first two visions, as Amos sees what's happening, it's obvious, right? The judgment is obvious, locusts and then destruction by fire. But in this vision, when he sees the plumb line, he would understand what that is, but how it, what it means and how it's connected to judgment would not necessarily make sense. And so God first asks him, what do you see? And then God explains it. Now here, this word plumb line, which is mentioned several times, is a difficult word to interpret. It it literally means uh, tin or a piece of metal. It's connected to an Akkadian word meaning tin. 
But this picture of a, a wall of tin or a, a tin in God's hand as judgment uh, doesn't make sense. It likely refers to uh, metal that was used at the end of a plumb line. Kind of like uh, they found one. We discovered one from Samaria right here. It looks like a bolt, but actually this is, you know, very ancient uh, uh, tin for a plumb line. Now, I used the pulpit first hour and I spilled the grape juice. So I got in trouble. So I'm going to use it. I'm going to get in trouble again. Okay, anyway. But basically what they would do, Sean Cullen, you can check me on this, but they would hold the plumb line. It's perfectly vertical. Gravity's our friend here. And what you can do is when it stops spinning and actually sits still, uh, you use the plumb line to determine just how far off a wall might be. So the, the, the more off the wall is, the more you can see that from the deviation from the straightness of the plumb line. And so Amos knew that. He would know they would use this generally in construction. In those days, they would use it to build a line. They would set it up and then line up the bricks to be perfectly coincident with that line. Or you could use it as a form to show a wall that's not aligned and determine that if that wall isn't aligned, you would tear it down. That is the picture that God is presenting here by talking about a plumb line. And he said he's going to bring a plumb line upon Israel. He's going to measure Israel. He's going to measure them against the standard of his covenant word. And you know, when I was doing the plumb line, I was looking down and I noticed my tie actually is sort of a plumb line for my stomach, which isn't good. Um, in any event, in Amos's case, once God explains the meaning of the vision, sorry, it just hit me. Uh, anyway, he describes this plumb line, putting this plumb line in the midst of Israel And as he would do that, it would show that Israel was completely crooked, more crooked even than the leaning tower of Pisa. Verse 9 indicates the crookedness is in their, the crookedness in their wall is from their corrupt worship and also their corrupt monarchy. And so God says, I I won't show mercy. I will tear down this wall. God says, uh, mentions that he's going to make the high places in Isaac, again, another reference to Israel, he's going to make them desolate. Those high places are places of worship that the Canaanites, before the Israelites came into the land, they had set up to their various false gods. They would set up these little shrines at hills or mounds upon in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And then when the Israelites came in under Joshua, they had converted many of these places of worship to worship of Yahweh. But unfortunately, over time, many of them reverted back into the worshiping of false gods. And so often you will see in the book of Kings in particular that a measure of a king's godliness was also determined by the fact of whether or not he allowed those high places to remain. And God says here, he's going to tear them down, that they are done. He also notes here uh, sanctuaries. These refer to the two central locations in Israel that Jeroboam I had established about 170 years prior. We've talked about this a few times where he had set up these worship centers in Israel so the people would not go back to Judah. He set one up in the very north in the tribe of Dan and also another up in the very south of, of Israel in Bethel. And these two places, remember, he had set up the golden calves and incorporated them and some other things in the worship of Yahweh. And so God says he is going to ruin those places as well for their corrupt worship. So as God hangs this plumb line, if you will, against Israel's corrupt worship, he finds it crooked. And the same thing happens as he hangs the plumb line against the house of Jeroboam, their current king. He too is found wanting. Back in 2 Kings 14, we had the description that Jeroboam did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of his forefathers. And so God says here, that the house of Jeroboam will fall by the sword. And that's exactly what happens about uh, 10 years later. Under uh, Jeroboam's son, Zechariah, he was on the throne less than six months and he was assassinated. And in this third vision that we're given here, we see that there is another difference from the first two in that Amos does not intercede for the people. You notice God begins the conversation in this third vision rather than Amos And God says, I will spare them no longer. And so Amos does not appeal in this third vision. And though we see in each of these three visions an emphasis again on God's judgment that he would bring upon the people of Israel, another thing that we also see is the heart of the messenger. For though Amos was given the message of judgment, this amazing herdsman from the south, unlike Jonah, this guy really cared about the people that he was speaking to, those that were under God's judgment. 
Back in chapter 5, remember, three separate times, Amos appeals. He says, seek God and live. Don't be destroyed. Seek Him. Seek Him that you may not die. And then here, those first two visions, as he sees the horror of what's happening unfold before him, do you, do you notice his heart here? He pleads with God. He says, please forgive them. Pardon. Don't do this. Don't do this. We see here Amos, he wasn't some hellfire and damnation preacher. He wasn't some guy, some prophet coming in condescension, pointing the finger. and God's going to judge you, you wicked sinners. That's not the man that we're talking about here. This man brought his messages of judgment from a heart of compassion. See, he didn't want to see these people suffer and perish. He did not want to see them in eternal torment. He wanted them to repent, to turn back to God and live, to know him, to have a relationship with him. He wanted them to be saved, not just from this coming physical judgment, but from eternal judgment. And beloved, this this characteristic is what should characterize everyone who speaks for God. Whether it's the preacher, whether it's the Sunday school teacher, the small group leader, the parent, the co-worker, the neighbor, whenever you share the gospel, you, you must speak a message of judgment. That is inherent and part of the gospel, that God is coming to judge sin. In fact, John the Baptist, it says of him that, that his, as he was preaching the gospel, he was preaching judgment. But remember something, as you proclaim that, you are not the judge. You come on behalf of the judge. And right now, it is a message that He has given us, not only of judgment, but to repent and be forgiven. You must warn them of hell. You must warn them of eternal torment. The message includes that. But bring it to them, not as if you were bringing that torment, but to keep them from it. This is what we see often from God's prophets. You remember Moses when the people worshipped the golden calf? You know, they, they made this calf and they worshipped it. And then, and then God was extremely angry. And he came in great wrath and anger. And God stood before the people and said, Please, God, don't wipe them out. And then again in Numbers 14, when the people refused to enter the promised land, remember they sent the spies in, the spies came back. God, they're, or Moses, they're too big, we can't defeat them. Essentially saying God can't do it for him and wouldn't do it for him. Or he wouldn't fulfill his promise. And God again was angry with them. was going to bring judgment. And Moses says, please God, don't. And he prayed for them. Abraham, remember he pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he negotiated God down. To, if God, if there are ten righteous ones, will you spare the city? Or I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He wrote an entire book of lamentations. He brought some terrible messages of judgment, but he was so burdened with those messages and he prayed for the people and he beseeched God on their behalf and, and he wept often. Or I think of Paul. He said of his countrymen, many of who tried to persecute him and did, and some tried to kill him. And he said of them in Romans 9.1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul was so burdened for their souls, he was willing to take their place. And the very city where Jesus would be rejected the very place where Jesus would be tortured and killed. He said of this place in Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children to me together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. And wasn't it our Savior as He hung upon the cross who prayed, Father, forgive them? You see, these men are all examples to us, brothers and sisters. They're examples of those who were courageous and spoke the truth of God, even though it contained judgment. But they're also examples of compassion to those who they brought that judgment to. People need to be confronted. You may have people in your families, your neighborhoods, your jobs who are in gross sin, in great rebellion against God, and they need the gospel. Amen? 
They need to be confronted over their sin. But it needs to be done in grace. Are you praying for them? Are you pleading to God for them? One day there will be great rejoicing. Psalm 96, Psalm 98 talks about when God brings His judgment and everything is made right. There will be great rejoicing. But right now we don't rejoice, we plead. This doesn't mean we wink at sin either. It doesn't mean that we ignore it, that we water it down, that we don't bring it up. Again, we must confront sin. People need to know that they are in sin and that they stand before God. If they were to stand before Him in judgment, they would be in eternal hell forever if they do not receive forgiveness for that sin. That is an important part of the message. People need to understand that. Otherwise, they wouldn't seek Christ's forgiveness. Otherwise, they wouldn't think there's a problem. We do have a message of sin that we must bring. But remember, though you come with a knife to wound, you also come with a balm to heal. I was recently talking with um, a woman who was sharing about a, a great struggle that had taken place in her family. Uh, there was a family member who was in terrible, gross immorality. And because of it, it had caused great division within the family and much hurt and much anger and much damage. And as she was expressing to me what was happening, she was very hurt and very angry. But then as she was talking and going on about what was taking place, she began to weep. And she was weeping at the thought of this family member who was caught in this terrible sin going to hell. That woman was ready to be a prophet to her family. And this isn't easy because those hearing the message will often not accept it. In fact, they may be hostile to it. Just as with Moses and Jeremiah and Paul and Jesus and even Amos. And that is what we see in the next section in Amos, starting in verse 10 of chapter 7. Amos and how they responded to his message of judgment from God. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying. But no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet. Nor am I a son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Excuse me. Stop there for a minute. So between the third vision that we just finished in verse 9 and the fourth vision that we'll see beginning in chapter 8, Amos inserts this narrative. And it's a narrative of a confrontation between him and the priest at Bethel, Amaziah. He was the chief priest, the head honcho of the religious system there in Bethel. Again, Bethel was a religious center of Israel. And this guy here confronts Amos. But the question first, before we look look at what he says, is why, why does Amos stick this in here instead of just continuing to the fourth vision? Why put this narrative in this place? And that's a good thing to, to realize that Amos here, we have to remember, as we're looking at his prophecy, we have to think about there are two audiences involved. Right? The Amos 1.1 tells us that he was given these visions that he came and brought to the people of Israel uh, concerning Israel just two years before the earthquake. So we've got to remember, Amos is writing something here that he spoke and he delivered two years prior. And we have to remember that then there's the audience that he first delivered the message to, the hearers, And there's a second audience in this book. It is the reader. For Amos likely did not compile these messages in the same order that he delivered them. In fact, some scholars think that the first sermon he proclaimed was probably these first two visions in chapter 7. And though we can't be certain of the order in which he preached these messages, we have to remember that as he's writing these things down, he wants to present these messages in a certain way so that his readers see a train of thought and a central focus that's in his letter. And I think this book that he wrote probably had a primary audience of readership in Judah. I think when he got back to Judah, he wrote these things down as a warning to them as well. Because if you remember, several times he's mentioned Judah in this book. 
Back in chapter 6, verse 1, he said, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. That's Jerusalem. And so not only did he have a message to proclaim to the people of Israel, he had a message that he wrote down that he wanted his readers to understand and be warned by. And so Amos puts here in this section, he puts this narrative, uh, one follow, it's following in verse 9, the response that, uh, that um, Amos delivered when he said the house of Jeroboam would fall by the sword, and Amaziah refers to that in his accusation against Amos. And then we also have this narrative here in preparation for what Amos is about to share in chapter 8, and that is God's response to the people. If we look at verse 9, Again, he mentions that the house of Jeroboam would fall by the sword. And then in verse 10, he shows how Bethel's head priest took exception to Amos' message. And then he said, Amos, I wrote a letter to the king. And I told him, you are trying to take him out. You're conspiring against him. And you're trying to cause a revolt in this land. Notice in verse 11, he says, in his note, he said, Thus says Amos, instead of thus says Yahweh. Clearly, he's trying to discredit the messenger. It's like the saying that goes, Men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts, it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. That's Amaziah's case. And he tells Amos in verse 12, You know, go back to Judah, you seer. The word seer is a synonym for prophet. Um, it was uh, focusing on the idea that the fact that he saw these visions. Seers would often see visions or dreams from God. And so he says, go back, you seer. Go back to Judah. Eat your bread there. Do your prophesying there. But get out of here. And that phrase, eat your bread there, was talking about go make your living there. Go earn your living there as a prophet. Don't, don't seek it here. Get out of here. And that's when Amos gives his famous reply in verse 14. Famous Amos. Anyway, he says, I am not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet. Now, Amos isn't denying that he's a prophet. That would uh, contradict what he said in the very first, first, very first verse of his book, that he was given these visions by God to proclaim. And in fact, that's led some translations like the ESV to just translate this phrase as a past tense. I was not a prophet. But that's not the normal way uh, the Hebrew rendering would be translated here. I am a prophet, or I, I am not a get myself confused i'm not a prophet uh, is fine that's a fine translation what, what he's saying here essentially is this i am not a prophet by profession amaziah you're accusing me of doing this to make money i'm not a prophet by profession i don't earn a living this way i'm a herdsman i raise cattle i raise sheep i raise goats i manage those who raise cattle sheep and goats in fact when god called me i was shepherding a flock of sheep no i, I don't need to do this for a living what he's saying then he's when he says i'm not a son of a prophet he doesn't mean his dad wasn't a prophet what he's referring to there is again prophets were not by birth but by calling sons of the prophets were a school of prophets kind of like a seminary that was uh, started by samuel and then continued on in the days of elijah and elisha and amos is simply saying i wasn't part of that school i didn't receive formal training Again, I'm just a, a guy that was watching sheep one day, and God tells me, Amos, go prophesy to my people Israel. Picture that, if you will. He's out just doing his job one day, and God says, all right, get up and go. Okay. And what he's saying here is, you know, it's not about the money, Amaziah. I, I don't make my living doing this. I came to give you a message that God gave to me. And Amos shows us here the right motivation for God's ambassador. We aren't to be in it for anything but this. We proclaim the message of the gospel to the world for just this reason, so that Christ will be honored and that's it. That's why Amos went. He went in response to obedience and honor of God. And if our motive is solely to honor Christ as we speak for Him, then that is what will give you wisdom when you encounter resistance. That is what will give you strength when you face rejection. That's what will encourage you when your words are twisted or your character is questioned, as in the case of Amos? For what will give you joy in the midst even of persecution is if you are doing it for Jesus and for Him alone and for all that He did for you. Now, since Amaziah, he was a priest, right? He was supposed to be the guy that represented God to the people. And yet this guy rejected God's message through Amos. In fact, told him to leave, to get out. And so in verses 16 to 17, 
God delivers a harsh sentence of judgment against Amaziah. And then after that judgment, the narrative part ends. We go to the next vision, the fourth vision, but we're not told what happens next. We don't know what Amaziah, how he responded to that. We don't know what became of Amos in that situation. We're left with these questions. I think, again, Amos is not focusing attention on him or on Amaziah. He's focusing attention on God's message and on God himself. And that's where he moves in chapter 8. And that's our third point in our outline this morning is God's reaction to the response. Look at verse 8. Verse, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. And here Amos gives the fourth vision, which he saw. And again, we see the same introductory formula here, don't we? Thus the Lord showed me, and then it's followed by what Amos saw. And God asks Amos, what do you see, Amos? Notice that this vision parallels the third one, where Amos doesn't speak first, but it is God. And it is God who asks him the question of what he sees. And just like the vision of the plumb line, what he saw, and I didn't bring a basket of summer fruit. I bombed the plumb line once. So. But anyway, picture a basket of summer fruit that's here. That's what Amos saw. Now, that basket makes sense. It's clear what it is, but what it means is what God then next explains. And what he says is that the end has come for my people Israel. Now, that, I think, would have clarified to Amos what was going on, but it still, I think, might be a little bit of a mystery to us. What does a basket of summer fruit have to do with judgment, have to do with Israel's end? And the thing is, to understand the link, we need to understand carefully the words that that he uses here. That word for summer fruit is the Hebrew word kayetz, which is translated as summer or summer harvest or summer fruit. That is fruit that is harvested at the end of the summer. We aren't told what the fruit was. could have been grapes or pomegranates or I think it probably was figs, given Amos's background. In any case, we aren't told that. And many, when they see or read about this, they think of this summer fruit as meaning it's ripened fruit. But he doesn't talk about ripeness here. Because they, they make a great connection. Wouldn't it, if it's a ripened fruit, meaning Israel is ripe for judgment? That point is true, that they were ripe for judgment. But the idea of summer fruit here is to communicate that this is the last agricultural harvest in Israel's calendar year. He's emphasizing the fact of the end. The summer fruit is the last fruit that would be harvested. Amos would understand it that way. Just as their harvesting has come to an end, as pictured by this summer fruit, so has Israel come to an end. And to emphasize this, Amos has a play on words here. The word for end in verse 2 is kates, which sounds a lot like the word for summer fruits, kates, doesn't it? And in fact, some Sumerian inscriptions have been found which indicate the pronunciation by those in Israel during Amos's day of, of some of these consonants um, would actually sound a little bit more, instead of kayets, would sound more like kates, kind of like y'all instead of you all. It's the same idea here. And so as the readers were seeing these words, they would see that Amos sees a basket of kayets which signals the kates of Israel. You see what he's emphasizing? Verse 3 then describes what normally would be a time of rejoicing when the harvest had come in and, and there had been provision for their food. What normally was a time of great joy, Amos describes here as a time of wailing because the festival has become a funeral. In fact, the, the last phrases there in verse 3 are actually uh, three short poetic lines, which I think the ESV translates really well, where it says, So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Point being is that the devastation of this will be so jarring that no one can say a word. All of their prosperity, all of their life's comforts, all of their security will be swept away in judgment. And those watching it will be left speechless. And then verses 4 to 6 of chapter 8 emphasizes the judgment that is to come. As Amos declares another oracle, he begins it with, hear this. As if to say, you know, anybody who may be wondering at this point why God would be so resolved to bring judgment, let me tell you why. 
And in verses 4 to 6, he again expresses the sin that was taking place among the people. Look at verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain again, and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat with dishonest scales, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat? This description should sound very familiar to us by now, shouldn't it? Back in Amos 2, verse 7, the indictments against people of Israel were introduced where Amos talked about the fact that you're exploiting the poor and the helpless among you. You are oppressing the needy. You are forcing them into servitude in order to pay your debts. And, and then you keep them in that place. You keep them in bondage by bribery to the judges and, and injustice. These people were driven by greed. And Amos describes it in more detail here as they were shrinking the measures as they were handing them out to be sold. And they were altering the weight, the shekel or the weights that were used in order to collect the money. Essentially, they were making the product smaller while charging more. Hmm, That sounds familiar. (laughs) Things don't change much, do they? God forbade such practices. He said back in the Torah, in Leviticus 19.35, You shall do no wrong in judgment. In measurement of weight or capacity, you shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah, and a just hin, for I am the Lord your God. Proverbs 20, verse 23 says, Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is not good. But that didn't matter to these people. They just wanted money. And they didn't care who it hurt along the way in order to get it. In fact, he exposes not only their hypocritical business practices here, but notice he exposes again their hypocritical worship. Where he says, you know, you guys, it's not that just you want to earn money dishonestly, but as you're sitting in church and singing the songs and listening to the message, all you can do is watch the clock because you want to get out in order to get more money. You can't wait till it hits six o'clock and you can go out and cheat people again. They didn't care about God. That was their problem. They didn't love God. They didn't want to worship Him. And they didn't love people. They didn't care about the pain and suffering that they were causing others. And so God says, it's over. You're done. Like a basket of summer fruit at the end of harvest, you are at the end. Then in verses 7 through 10, God gives a foretaste of His judgment. As He says in verse 7, if you could look there, "...the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds." Because of this, will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. God describes here in verse 8 a great earthquake, one that will shake the land just like the rise and fall of the river Nile. It probably was the earthquake that he referred to in the very first verse of the book, one that occurred during the reign of Uzziah. Tremendous earthquake. And it appears that uh, an eclipse may have accompanied that earthquake as he talks about the sun growing dark in the middle of the day. And think about this, this message that he delivered to these people about a coming earthquake. And then one comes two years later as a harbinger, a a warning that all the, the prophecies that Amos delivered is true. But they wouldn't listen. Amos describes here again in verse 10 that in that day, their mourning will be their, their, their happiness, their fleeting happiness will be turned into mourning, a bitter mourning like one losing their only child. And if all of that was not bad enough, verses 11 to 14, we see what's even worse. As if the judgment of the things and these things that he's described were not bad enough, they are not yet at the worst of it. There's a worse judgment yet to come. Look at verse 11. Behold, days are coming declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. 
In that day, the beautiful young women and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Here God declares a greater judgment. He says to them, because you have rejected the word that I've brought to you, I'm not going to bring it anymore. And if anything can be worse than words of judgment, it is no words at all. For at least with words of judgment, there's an opportunity to know where God stands. There's an opportunity to respond, right? It's a warning. But when God goes silent, oh, that is a scary place to be. When God says, talk to the hand, that's not a thing we'd ever want to hear. And that's what he's telling people of Israel. There's going to come a day where I'm going to tell you to talk to the hand. And that would happen less than 40 years later. The people would be taken into exile. And they, most of them would be taken from the land of Israel to a far another part of the Assyrian Empire. And in that part of the empire, there would be no Bibles. There would be no prophets. There would be no places of worship to God. And the people would get to a place where they'd be staggering about looking for it. It says here, like people who are, who are drunk or who are dying of thirst or hunger. And God says, you will look and you won't find it. Because time after time after time, I've brought you my word. I brought it again through the prophet Amos and you've rejected it. Told Amos to go back to his own land. And God says, because of that, I'm done now. Again, the Israelites experienced that silence about 40 years later. And the people of Judah, they experienced that silence right after the prophet Malachi for over 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist. It's actually called by scholars the period of silence. God was again silent in the dark ages. The ember of his word was almost snuffed out. But then, praise God, he raised up men like John Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Knox and Tyndale. And we now bask in the fire, in the glow of the fire that they rekindled the word of God. But I fear that fire is close to going out in our land. I think these words that Amos is speaking to Israel, our land needs to take to heart. Because, yeah, there's a lot of Bibles. There are lots of Bibles. But how many read them? How many follow them? How many believe them? Beloved, we are at a brink of famine in our own land. Uh, I don't know if you heard about earlier this week the the Bibles uh, labeling at Costco in Simi Valley. Did you hear about that? Um Earlier this week, a pastor had noticed as he was shopping there uh, that there had uh, the, the label on the Bibles there were stamped and categorized as fiction. Yeah, now Costco, as it was brought to their attention, they later said it was a mix-up, it was unintended, they would take care of it. And, and maybe it was unintentional. But that error in labeling really sums up where we are at as a nation. For many, this book is fiction. Yeah, it's inspirational. There are nice sayings in it, just like sayings from Confucius or other inspiring people over the course of history. But most of it didn't really happen. One survey showed that 40 or 55% of those who call themselves Christians strongly agreed that the Bible is accurate in all it teaches. Now, that might sound good at first, but did you hear what I said? Only 55% of those who call themselves Christians, say that this book speaks what is true. That same survey, only 40% of those who call themselves Christians, or 40%, said that the Book of Mormon, the Koran, and the Bible all express the same truths, same spiritual truths. Is that, is that true, Sharon? Is that true? The same spiritual truths. Only the Bible can deliver you from hell. The other two send you there. How long is God going to suffer the dismissal and dishonor of His Word? How long is He going to let it be disputed and demeaned? How long is He going to let it be left on the shelf or labeled as fiction before He responds and says, there's going to be a famine in this land? How long is He going to wait? How long will He put up with sermon after sermon after sermon that treats this like a storybook or an inspirational book or many don't even open it? Imagine this. Imagine if some very famous person 
if you got a phone call right after service from some very famous person, Paul Roy Eisner calls you on the phone. Hey, Paul. And what if Paul hung up? What if some famous person called you and you hung up? Do you think they would call you back? It'd be amazing for them to, to call you at all, right? But, but to hang up on them and then have them call you back. And yet here we have God's communication to us uh, greater than any famous person ever in history. And he has given us his book, his letter, his, his story that reveals intimate details about himself so that we can know him. He's given that to us. An open phone call. How many times do you think he'll continue to call back? Martin Luther had these insightful words for his countrymen in his day. Let us remember our former misery and the darkness in which we dwelt. Again, he's speaking of the Reformation. This is early 16th century. Germany, I am sure, has never before heard so much of God's words as it is hearing today. Certainly we read nothing of it in history. If we let it just slip by way by, by with, let, if we just let it slip by without thanks and honor, I fear we shall suffer a still more dreadful darkness and plague. O oh, my beloved Germans, buy while the market is at your door. Gather in the harvest while there is sunshine and fair weather. Make use of God's grace and word while it is there. For you should know that God's word and grace is like a passing shower of rain, which does not return where it has once been. And you Germans need not think that you will have it forever. For ingratitude and contempt will not make it stay. Therefore seize it and hold it fast, whoever can. Those words by Martin Luther to his fellow Germans in his day as the the Bible was being uh, uh, opened up, as it was being exposed, translated in the German language and caused the fire of the Reformation to burn. Luther warns them, he said, seize it while we have it now. It's the same message to us. We've been given an amazing, wonderful treasure, an incredible gift, a gift of immeasurable value, because again, we learn from it who God is. We learn from it who we are. We learn about our sin and we learn about His holiness. From this book, we learn of His dear Son, Jesus Christ, of the perfect life He lived and of the sacrificial death he died. We learn from it the good news that we can know him and have eternal life if we would but turn from our sin, place our trust in him, and recognize that he has paid for that sin by his death on the cross. You couldn't learn that from looking at creation. We can know that there is a God that made everything by looking at what is made, but we don't know much else about him. We can know that he's powerful, that he's creative, that, that he's uh, maybe intricate in what we see in creation, that he's intelligent and he's wise, but that's it. It's only because we have his book, his communication to us, that we can know him, that we can know about him, that we can know about Jesus, and that we can know about salvation. He's revealed himself intimately to us through his word. A few years ago, I shared with you a story I'd heard of a blind girl in France um, that uh, she had read Braille so much that her fingertips became calloused. And so she lost feeling in them, and so she took a knife and cut the calluses off of her fingers. But in doing so, she had so damaged her fingers that she w- the nerves were, sh- were totally shot. She could no longer feel with her fingers. And so she took her Bible to kiss it goodbye. And as she pressed it against her lips, she realized something. She could read with her lips. And so she began reading the Word of God with great joy with her lips. Robert Sumner writes of a young believer who had suffered a uh, tragic explosion and had lost his hands, his eyesight, his face was horribly disfigured as a result. And he heard about this French girl and heard about how she had read the Bible with her lips. And so he tried to do the same thing. He attempted to, to bring the Bible to his lips, but his lips were completely, um, nerves were completely gone because of the explosion. And so he tried again and again and again, and he was an, unable to do it. But then in one of his attempts, his tongue had inadvertently touched the page, and he realized he could read. So he read with his tongue. And by the time Sumner had published his book, he had read the entire Bible four times. 
with his tongue. Beloved, these people realized what a precious gift God's truth is. Amen? So this Thanksgiving, let's be sure to thank God for sending us his son and for allowing us to have his precious book. For allowing us to have it in our own language. Because I don't think there are many of us here in this room who are experts in ancient Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. To allow for us to have a translation we can understand. To, uh, to give us the ability to read it. We need to be thankful for that. Thankful for the Lord providing many to explain it and help us understand it. Thankful for the many who came before us, like John Wycliffe, like William Tyndale, and many others who, who brought us the Word of God in our language. And it's interesting in the formers, one of the main pushes they had was to translate the Bible in the language of the people so they could understand it. But many who did that suffered persecution and some died just so we could have this book in our language. We need to thank God for them and we especially need to thank the Lord for the Word of Life Himself our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him now. Lord, we are grateful, so grateful that You have given us Your Word, that You cared enough for us to communicate to us, to, given us, to giving us Your Word in a, in a book that is fixed, that doesn't deviate, that's not subject to, Lord, uh, <clears throat> Lord our whims or misinterpretations, but You've given us Your very words. We thank you for that, Lord, and I, I do pray that we would treasure and value your word and how we learn from it about you. And of course, Lord, we're not worshiping a book, we're worshiping the author of the book. And Lord, give us a great hunger and desire to know you. And Lord, I do pray for our country and ask, God, again, please show us mercy or bring about a revival in our land desire to turn from sin and trust in Jesus alone. Lord, a desire to lift up Your Word as the only source of truth to honor You through it. We thank You for sending us Your Spirit, Lord, that we can understand Your Word and apply it. I pray this week, God, that, Lord, as we are thankful for many things, that we would first and foremost be thankful for Jesus Christ and thankful for Your Word through which we can know Him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.